right, we are starting a new series called Struck Eight Moments. Eight moments when a new thought, a new concept, a new direction, something hits our brain, our heart, our soul, and we have to do something with it. And there'll be four contemporary versions and four biblical ones. And this first one is Ricky Gervais. And I, I don't know what you think. Of the, I think the clip's hilarious. I've seen it a bunch of times now. It remains as funny because Ricky Gervais is funny. Seriously, he's just funny. If you haven't seen the BBC version of The Office, you, you owe it to yourself to see it at least once. It is, if possible, more embarrassing than the American version. I watched it for a while, and then I had to start covering my eyes because I was so embarrassed because of how he is as the Michael Scott guy. Um, anyway, but Ricky Gervais is, is hilarious. And in this clip, though, for, for my money, it's got two different parts to it. One of them is shtick. You know, he, he's just being funny. He's, he's just doing his lines, and it's not really sincere. He's just being funny. And the other part of it is there's a couple of moments particularly where I think it's dead-on genuine, where he's not scripting. He actually was caught up in remembering that critical moment when he was eight years old when a thought hit his brain that he had to do something with. And just so you know, whole point today is, is this, to ask this question, what are you going to do in those moments of clarity? Are you going to revert to shtick, or are you going to go to reality? And this is what I mean by shtick. It's when you fall back on your common patterns, ways of thinking, and you allow the moment, which has revolutionized, or I shouldn't say revolutionized, has shook something within you, when you allow it to pass and dismiss it. For example, a, a number of years ago, one of my brothers came down to visit me because his life had fallen apart. And there was a brief moment where we were no longer in shtick. We were in reality, and thoughts had hit his brain that he had not considered before, and we had moments that were very honest dialogue about where his life was and what he was going to do and how he was going to live, and then very quickly the window closed and we were back to shtick. We were back to the normal patterns of dealing with things, dismissive. It was no longer rocking his world. And we all have our own way of doing shtick. You see, while these incidents we're going to look at are, are pretty central and, and huge moments of being struck, we get them every day. The little, little moments where something hits us, and we all have our own way of doing shtick. Some of us deny it ever happened. Some of us escape it, make fun of it, make a joke of it, blame, shift, all sorts of things. The question is, when those moments hit, what are we going to do with them? Now here, just so you get a sense, here's, here's my opinion of uh, Ricky Gervais' stick. The, as you'll see, there's going to be a compilation of something he says in this video and something from a previous interview he'd done when you're going to get the sense of he's just being funny. Believed in... We've got to realise that when you're a working-class kid, I came from a very um, poor working-class background. My dad was a labourer, my mum was a housewife. I lived in a, a poor estate... Um, like the project, mm. right? And um, to a working-class mum, uh, her hope isn't that you become a doctor or a lawyer or a, an international comedian. It's that you don't die in a barroom fight. Mm. <laughs> but that's because when you're a working-class mum, Jesus is like an unpaid babysitter. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like... She wants you to be good. You know, the best of working-class mum where I grew up could... She, she wasn't hoping I'd be a doctor or a lawyer. She hoped I wouldn't be stabbed to death in a barroom fight, you know. Yeah, see, it's just a joke. It's a good one, but it's just a joke. 
And in those moments, he's taking this struck experience of his life and just reverting, normal patterns of dealing with it. But there's a, um, there's a couple others that are striking. And if you look at his eyes, you realize he's not doing a punchline. He's remembering. He's remembering the moment when a thought struck his brain that he didn't expect. This is one of them. Just great teachings of Jesus. I love Jesus. He was my superhero. Um, he really was. God was magic, right? But Jesus was just a man. And what I loved about Jesus was he was kind. And he, he was brave. And I thought he was amazing. And um, I absolutely I thought he was brilliant. Right? Just a brilliant guy, you know. First time I read the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. And it's the most personal of the four accounts. It's the one where you see more one-on-one interaction of Jesus with other people. And when I was not in faith, when I was still an atheist, I read the Gospel of John. Don't ask me why. That's a whole other series of struck moments which led me to be sitting at the age of 17 reading the Gospel of John. Unless you knew where I came from, you have no idea how bizarre a moment that would have appeared. At 17, I'm reading the Gospel of John, and this is what happened for me, very similar to Ricky Gervais. I remember reading it. I was not yet convinced of anything yet other than Jesus was amazing. As I read through it, I was struck, and I didn't phrase it exactly how he did, how he did the exact same concepts. What I said was Jesus was strong, and yet he was tender. He was a person of conviction, yet he was a person who cared about other people. As Ricky Gervais says that he was kind and he was brave. He was brilliant. He was my superhero. I remember when I read through the, the Gospel of John, I was in no way convinced that there was a God or that Jesus was him. I was just convinced that he was amazing. And what I thought, I remember thinking this at one point going, okay, if he's not God, I really want to know who the guy is who made this up. Because whoever made this up is similarly brilliant. Because I don't know, if you haven't read through the Gospel of John, I encourage you to do that. Because one of the things you'll find happen, I think, is you'll read through it, and it, you're, it's not predictable. It's not like somebody went down and said, okay, I've got to write a story about a really cool guy, and you can, follow, you can see, oh, he's about to do this. It's not predictable. Jesus continues to do that which isn't expected and leave us at the end going, wow, I didn't expect that, and that was amazing. And it is encapsulated... <coughs> And those couple of notions, he was kind and he was brave. And so I want to look at, uh, uh, look at us. Mm -mm, Don't want to do that. I want us to look at a passage in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, which is one of the passages I believe is something like Ricky Gervais might have read, which made him think that. It's certainly one of the ones that made me think that. And let's just walk through this passage. I'm going to read it to you. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now you have to have a little background just so this makes any sense whatsoever. Until the 19th century, people believed that John was making this up because there was no such pool as Bethesda. In the 19th century, archaeologists uh, discovered it and realized, just as he described it, this pool actually sits there. And one of the things, the stories around the pool, was that there was some sort of healing that went on within it, but you had to enter the pool at exactly the right time. Now, whether or not there was any sort of healing that actually happened, I have no idea. All we know is that at least the story at that time was that if you entered the pool, Bethesda, at the right moment, you could be healed. 
This explains what people were not sunbathing there. This just explains why disabled people are, were lying next to this pool, waiting for the right moment to get into the pool. Now, there, a lot of them were paralyzed, which makes it hard to get into the pool, which is where our story picks up. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So in other words, someone was bringing him to this pool and setting them next to it. But he'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I love that section. Because here's why. Jesus walks into the situation. He's now uh, becoming a big shot, right? He, he's becoming a religious big shot. He's got a train of followers. He's got hangers on, you know? He's got an entourage, unbidden, unwilling. He didn't choose an entourage, but people are now following him. Plus, all the biggest leaders of the day know who he is and are aware of him. He can command an audience with almost anyone at this point. And so he walks into the midst of this crowd and he sees the guy who would not have been that easy to pick out lying next to a pool who had been an invalid for 38 years and that's who he chooses to go up to. And then he says to him, do you want to get well? My assumption is, if you looked in the eyes of Jesus at that moment, there was something about it that communicated a level of compassion that caught the man off guard. This is why. If I'd been an invalid for 38 years and a guy walks up to me and says, do you want to get well? I'd go, what do you think, Sherlock? Been lying here for 38 years. No, no, I really, I just came here because I love laying out by the pool. Of course I want to get well. He doesn't respond like that. Which leads me to believe when Jesus looked at me and says, do you want to get well? He heard something in that voice that was calling out to him. Calling out the unspoken desire of his heart that, of course I want to get well, but I have no idea how it could happen. Because his response to him is this, sir, I, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. I'd love to. I can't pull it off. Jesus looks at him and simply says this. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. So, Jesus picks out the person in the room who everybody else would have ignored. He can't do anything for you. Jesus walks to that person. He, with kindness and compassion, speaks to him in such a way that the man opens up his heart to him and Jesus says, it's done. You're healed. No big rigmarole. No, you got to do this. No, you got to do that. Done. You want to be well? I bet you do. How about you be well right now? Pick up your mat and walk away. Okay, this is great. You should understand the story there, and people would go, wow, this is amazing. Look at this Jesus guy. Here's what's going on, though. Jesus does this on the Sabbath. At that time, in that culture, Sabbath was a Saturday, and on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to do any work, and it had been taken to somewhat ridiculous extremes, such that you couldn't really do anything. Like you couldn't actually help somebody out on the Sabbath because that would be work. Jesus didn't like that notion. So I think with some intent, he does it on the Sabbath. He's kind and he's compassionate, but he also is brave because he's about to launch into a situation. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews, and you know, when you read that, it's not like all Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. It refers to a religious elite of the day, the religious leaders. Said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, see, here's what I find interesting. The guy had been an invalid for 38 years. He's now walking and carrying his mat. They look at him and they go, why are you carrying the mat? Not, wow, 
You're healed. This is awesome. You know, maybe put the mat down. What do you, what do you do carrying the mat? Yeah, yeah, healed fine, but you're carrying the mat. So the guy says, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. He replies, okay, man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He healed me, so I figured if he tells me to pick up the mat, that ought to be okay. So they say to him, who is this fellow? Again, not who is this fellow who healed you by going, bam. Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat? We want a piece of him. And uh, the man who was healed had no idea who he was. Again, so Jesus didn't go, look, I'm about to do something for you, but uh, here's who my name is. Remember it. Tell your friends, Jesus. Going to change the world. Let's get the marketing campaign going. He doesn't even know who he is. Jesus says, you want to get well? Yeah, I bet you do. You're healed. Let's go. Move on. Get your mat. Get out of here. Uh, Jesus slipped away into the crowd that was there. Okay, so later Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, I, I like this too, just because I don't expect this line. See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I just don't expect that line. And Jesus is like saying, let's, you're well now. Let's move on. It's really not just about your body being well. Let's move on here with your life, okay? Let's not, you know, degenerate. And uh, the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things in the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Okay, now, here's your moment. Jesus is kind, we know that. But he's not sweet. You know those images, those caricatures of Jesus? You know, he's got his hand like this, and he's kind of wispy. He's ethereal. He hovers around. He's not sweet. He's kind, and he's good, but he's very brave because now they're coming after him. And he's got lots of outs. Really, it, it says something perhaps about me that I can think of all the outs he would have. <laughs> was it the Sabbath? I, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm really bad with time. And I was thinking it was fr- my bad. You know, won't do it again. Or, yeah, I shouldn't have had him pick up the mat. You're right. You know, that was a, that was a foul. Yeah, healing good. Pick up mat, bad. Next time I'll tell him to leave his mat there. Could have done all sorts of things. What he does is he's like, okay, the fire's burning. Here, let's put some gas on it because I want you not to simply know he was convicted. I want you to understand who it is who stands before you and what's really going on here. So what he says is, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried tried all the harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That is a Hebrew concept of equality. And so what he says is at this point, instead of evading and dodging, what he says is, okay, two things. Number one, the God of the universe, he keeps working. I am too. Your whole Sabbath thing, it's really flawed. Number two, I'm the son of God. He launches himself into the fray with more force, and then he picks it up harder. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom it's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all, all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So now he says, 
okay, I can raise people from the dead. I get to judge uh, humanity, and you need to honor me. He is kind. He's not sweet. He is kind, and he's brave. This is the picture of Jesus throughout the New Testament. Somebody who weighs into situations, caring for the least, and going full at the people who can hurt him without wavering, without waffling. It was passages like that that stopped me in my tracks. It made me think there is something, you know, Plato, and more Plato than Aristotle, but he believed that every time we saw an image of something that, that raised our interest, it was because it was something akin to the perfect thing. If we saw the form of somebody we found beautiful because it was something akin to real beauty. The same feeling I had when I, I looked at Jesus, every time I, I, I saw his image, it was like there is something akin to the thing that is the truest and most powerful about humanity that I see in him. And I finished reading the Gospel of John and thought, I would like to be like him. It's the same place Ricky Gervais was at, quite honestly. Jesus is my superhero. He's amazing. And then someone walked in the room his brother and said why do you believe in God? Now see on the surface of it that doesn't strike me at all. You ask me later why I believe in God I'm happy to tell you. It doesn't strike me at all. His mother perhaps though didn't have those reasons herself. And so as a little kid seeing his mother waver he realized wait, wait, wait she doesn't believe this not real to her. This was a moment of clarity, and it collapsed. I'm going to show you one other clip of his, because I think it articulates the moment he had and the wistfulness, the desire that laid somewhere deep beneath that God was scratching even in that moment. I wish there was a God. I wish there was. It would be great. What I've heard, he's brilliant, you know. <laughs> but um, I just, I can't, you can't, you can't believe in something you don't. I wish there was a God. I wish there was. Why? There's something even in that very question. Why? The philosopher Nietzsche gets a really bad rap for saying God is dead. If you've seen that phrase, you've most likely seen it on a bathroom wall. It's usually written this way, God is dead Nietzsche, Nietzsche is dead God. And it's viewed as if Nietzsche was saying, was being rebellious, was a defiant atheist. Not so. Nietzsche's articulation of that phrase, God is dead, was this, I wish there was a God, I wish there was. And then with a collapse of his shoulders, but there's not. See, Nietzsche had a moment of clarity also where the reality of God became in question for him, and he believed it was simply a notion, and that notion had crashed under the weight of progress of science and academia. And so what he said was, God is dead, and I lament his death because we need him. See, there's something very wistful in that notion. I wish there was a God. I wish there was. And it is that, that moment, 
And, and I, I hate to just tell you, I don't, that's not true. I'm not just trying to tell you my personal story, but that was exactly the moment that I had a number of years ago where I thought, Jesus is amazing. Is it real? See, that's the question at the heart here. Jesus is amazing. Is it real? Is it just a story, or is there truth behind it? And in that moment, I had this question, with, I had this thought within me. I wish there was a God. I wish there was. Is there? Is there? And so I asked. And I explored in that moment, and for a moment, my shtick died. I wasn't defending and deflecting. I wasn't thinking about how it might affect my persona. I really wanted to know, is there a God? And really was hoping there was, fully prepared that there might not be. But I wanted to know. It's a key moment of clarity for me. Now, at this moment, this is what I want, this is what I want you to walk away with today. Those moments of clarity, those moments when you were struck are moments of pursuit because the story of the Bible is the story of God through Jesus pursuing you. It is not ethereal. It's practical and tangible. The moments of your days or weeks when you are struck by a thought as if your heart is stopped and your eyes come flying open, those are the moments God are pursuing you, just like he does right here in the passage because after he raises their ire, after he gets their attention— this is what he says. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Remember, these people want him to die. And he looks out at this crowd and he says, listen to me, this is a moment. If you'll embrace the love that I have for you, I'll give you life. You can move from death to life right now. You can move into the relationship with God for which you was created. He takes that struck moment and he calls out to the people who are before them. It's what he does to you and I. And the real question is, what are we going to do in those moments of pursuit? One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And in a book, Surprised by Joy, which is the story of his conversion, um, Lewis was an atheist. He was an English writer. He's more known now, popularly, for the truly bad movies, Chronicles of Narnia. They're fascinating books. It's just, as Mark Dickman has said, talking beasts really can't make that work. Really can't. Anyway, Lewis was a brilliant writer. Now, he, was an, he was an atheist who began to question his atheism because he had moments, moments where he was struck with pursuit of something, which he called joy. And this is what he said. There were moments, and he, and he details three of them in his book, Surprised by Joy, moments where he said he experienced an unsatisfied desire, more desirable than anything he'd ever had satisfied. In other words, he had moments where he would say his eyes flew open and he sensed something, a wistfulness, a longing that was more pleasant. The longing, the unmet desire was more pleasurable than any desire he'd ever had satisfied. And he tells the story, his third moment was when he's reading a line from a, 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 a poem where it says, 
uh, Bolger the Great is dead. He's dead. And he says, suddenly something swept over me so strongly that I felt I had to have this moment again. And it made him question, is there something more? What's happening in this moment? He could have easily gone to shtick. Eh, you know, I'm just emotional because, you know, this happened in my life, or I'm just kind of tired. And He sensed that there was something bigger and something worth pursuing him. And at that moment, he waited in three times, three incidents he had. At the end of those third one, he walked in and said, I need to know what's going on here. What is, is there something more that I need to explore? And to his own surprise, and that's why I said surprised by Joyce, to his own surprise, he ended up becoming a Christian. Question for you and me is, what are we going to do in our moments when we are struck? Going to pursue? Going to let him go? I don't know what strikes you today. I'm absolutely confident that you are being struck by something. You may be struck by the sense that you may have this question, is there a God? I wish there were, but is there? It may be your question. Your question may be, how have I gotten so bogged down in my life? What's the, and then you were struck by a moment, a glimmer of hope of something greater. You may be battling through a relational difficulty, and then there's a moment where something strikes you, and you think, wait, wait, maybe the pattern, maybe the way I've been going about this is wrong. It's an open window. You know what I mean? It's that open window where suddenly the, the, the fog clears away and you have a moment of insight which can be difficult because it's not exactly what you wanted. And in that open window, you have a choice. Will I weigh in or will I revert? Sometimes those windows stay open a short period of time. I've had a few of those things that Lewis defines, those moments where it was like the bittersweet. It was so poignant and so powerful. And then it's, it's almost as if, you know, you're in a room and you smell something and then it's gone. And I wanted them back so strongly. Our moments of being struck can be brief. Where is God trying to get your attention today? This passage is emblematic of how Jesus deals with us. He's always pursuing. He always takes the moment where something is erupting and then speaks an invitation and an offer into it. This moment, whatever God is striking you, wherever he is unsettling you, he is speaking an invitation into your life. My hope for every one of us, myself included, quite clearly throughout this series, is that we will open up our hearts and minds, our spirits, our souls, our lives to those moments where God is trying to get our attention so we may see real profound change in our connection with him, in our relational growth, in the depth of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us in this time we have together? I pray for your spirit to speak to each one of our hearts about your passion and pursuit for us, that you sent your only son, Jesus, for a very specific purpose. To wake our hearts, to offer us forgiveness, to realign us back with you. 
I pray we may experience that pursuit even in the midst of this time today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go into this time of worship, we begin it as we always do with our offering.